Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today I'm going to show I have a recording of my presentation at the IAFP at the Institute of Advanced Financial Planners annual symposium in Edmonton this year. I presented on the topic of FinTech and the future of financial advice. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. By the way, she's the one who said contentious initially. So thank you. The privilege of having the last speaking spot is that I get to go over and there's no penalty. So I'll try to keep it uh, reasonable and a little bit more energetic given that we're all tired from last night. So basically this, uh, this speech is entitled FinTech and the Future of Advice and specifically looking at the challenges of what is coming our way. So it's a couple of pieces. I'm gonna look first and foremost at how we got here to where we are, look at some of the players in the space, in the FinTech space and what's going on currently and some of the bigger success stories. And then look at some technological trends that are going to permeate everything in the world, not just us, but elsewhere. And then talk about what we can do in terms of small incremental steps now, as opposed to waiting for this to become a problem that crushes us later. So with that, there's a clicker somewhere. There it is. So FinTech, what is it and how do we get here? Well, quite simply, it is two words, financial and technology. And how do we get here? Well, this is part of the natural development of what's been going on in technology for years. So we've had kind of, we're in the kind of fourth wave of technological development when it comes to computer technology. The first one was hardware. So all these, you may recall back in the day when computers could fill rooms, but over time, that wave of technology basically eventually ended or climaxed with the desktop computer revolution where all of us had access to, to hardware that could process and do things that we, could, we had to do the old fashioned way before. The software revolution worked in tandem more so later on and was really inspired or was really turbocharged by the desktop revolution. Once we could actually use computers in everyday life, we needed to be able to do different things with them. So that's where the Microsofts of the world, the Microsoft offices of the world, all those sort of things we got used to came along. And then the third wave was the internet. And the internet basically connected everyone and everything and allows us access to information everywhere. And the thing that, what the first three have in common is they were all basically creating infrastructure. They were laying down the groundwork for what's coming next. And what's coming next is that essentially now that the roads are built and the plumbing's in, where do the VC dollars go? They go towards transforming individual industries into narrow verticals. So you're seeing massive VC investments specifically in FinTech, HealthTech, basically any previous acronym for short form name for an industry and technology. And we're seeing this pick up. Last year was a record setting year for FinTech investment at $40 billion in venture capital deals and almost 2000 deals worldwide. This year we're a little bit off that pace, but it's not surprising because we actually are starting to see some global giants emerge in the FinTech space. Specifically, there are over 48, this was about a couple months ago, so now it's over 48, 48 FinTech unicorns, a unicorn is a private company worth over a billion dollars. There are 48 globally, mostly in the US, but all over the world, totaling 187 billion as of August of this year. So this is not a fly-by-night thing. This is not a small robo trying to take your business. This is a redefinition of our relationship with money. So in order to look at the current state of things, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to look at some of the different subsectors of FinTech in general. Talk to you about some of the Canadian players, talk to you about some of the mind-boggling statistics that are coming out of these things and look at success stories and, and how things are progressing in, every, in various areas. So the first area is digital banking. Basically every line of business that a bank pursues is being challenged by some sort of startup. That includes everything from basic lending to transaction processing, deposits, you name it. And user adoption globally is going strong. The top 25 players in this space have over 230 million users around the world. 
I'll get to some of those statistics on, that are more interesting later. So the fastest growing segment is what's known as challenger banks. These are basically what you think of as a bank. I'm going to take deposits. I'm going to provide banking services. And this area is not only the fastest growing, but the most interesting. In fact, the largest player in Canada, Coho, whose name is the bottom there, basically already, they've been around for three to four years, and they have a grand total of about 110,000 depositors currently. Doesn't sound like a huge number, but that actually makes them bigger than the number eight credit union in the country. The biggest player worldwide is a company called Revolut. Revolut operates in multiple countries and currently has seven million depositors. Revolut, Revolut. And by contrast, Bank of Montreal's got eight million depositors. Revolut's been around for four years. So, there are several plays in the space. I have some of the Canadian ones up there. BorrowWell, which gives you free credit scores, but then also arranges for debt consolidation loans. Rate Hub helps you shop for uh, better mortgage rates. NanoPay is all about processing amounts of transactions at super high speeds. And Coho, who I just mentioned, is a challenger bank. The interesting thing about this is this is the area that has attracted the most space from two acronyms at the bottom, the G Mafia and the BAT. I borrowed those acronyms from a book on artificial intelligence called The Nine that came out recently. And if anyone wants to read probably the definitive work on the good, the bad, and the ugly of our artificial intelligence, that's the book. So that acronym stands for Google, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, IBM, and Amazon. And the BAT are the Chinese equivalents of Baidao, Alibaba, and Tencent. Every last one of them has been pushing into finance, in either in small ways or in big ways. Apple, for instance, recently launched their credit card. Prior to that, in the US, you were able to leave cash on your Apple Card wallet, which existed. And of course, they're in Apple Pay. Amazon is probably the most aggressive in this space. What I mean by that is not just banking. They've done banking tactics. They've also recently made a major investment to trying to figure out how to fix their group insurance uh, situation. They've also gotten to property and casualty insurance. So make no mistake, these global giants that have basically tackled, that have tackled their spaces are very much looking at finance. And the reason is quite simple. Nothing scales like money. You lick the spoon of any percentage of transactions in this world, and it doesn't have to be a big lick. It's a large number. The second area is bank tech. Now, this is different from banking in that this is banking as a service for other companies. And what I mean by that is that different companies can go out and create their own digital online bank without having to recreate the infrastructure that existed before for taking deposits. Perfect example of this is Coho. Again, I mentioned them previously. They are a challenger bank. And they sit on, they basically market their, their, their business, they own the technology behind it, but then when it comes time to deposit the money in people's accounts, they're not a bank. They've teamed up with a company called People's Trust, who is basically their back end for banking. And this is becoming more and more basically robust in the US, where certain banks, there's a company called Green Dot Banking, traditional bank that started offering these services to technology companies and letting them build whatever experience they wanted over top of their back end. And because of that, now, last year, they actually made more money from banking as a service than they did from banking. And this is something that is actually starting to create interesting opportunities for the likes of us. So for example, Coho is about to launch a product that will allow dealers to link the Coho card to a non-registered account. So client has a bunch of cash that builds up in their account. They want to put it in high interest savings. That can be transferred over to the non-registered account that we manage, and whatever high-interest savings product we want can be put in there. They're short on cash, they can pull it out, essentially making us the banking custodian, for lack of a better term. Another way to put a fence around a client. And I recently spoke or interviewed a gentleman by the name of Ron Carson, who, if anyone knows his name, he is an absolute financial planning legend in the US, runs a massive RIA. He recently teamed up with a company called Magellan to offer a product called Carson Cash, where he is basically offering basic depositing services through this company under the umbrella of his RIA. Again, further preventing the client from having to go to the bank and letting the bank compete with you.
RegTech. RegTech stands for Regulatory Technology. So this is compliance, the boring stuff. Now, this means everything from KYC and AML to basically continuing education. Now, the gastrics here, that black circle is a company I helped start. <laughs> so I'm promoting myself. But the, let's list the poll everybody. Has anyone noticed how the only growth area in your back office has been compliance for the last 10 years? Yeah, exactly, right? And this is not just a Canadian problem. This is a global trend. In fact, many countries have seen compliance costs double in the last 10 years. And it shows no sign of being fixed until now. And the problem is, is that as the KYC, all these burdens were introduced and or increased, what happened was we dealt with it the old fashioned way. We threw bodies at the problem and very little was done to digitize the experience. Well, that's changing now. What's changing now is you see companies basically re-engineering their entire system to build compliance into it. So you can't even progress in the system until the form's filled out properly. So therefore you need fewer compliance officers. And a perfect example of a really crazy story I heard was owl.co. The company is less than a year old and has already sold to two of the big five major banks, which is unheard of in the technology sphere. How do they do it? They, if you listen to my podcast, you can hear a crazy story on how they've engineered this thing to be awesome. But case study, they went into a major bank and looked at their AML and KYC backlog. At the current rate at a progress, it would take two years to get through the backlog. Now, they weren't going to wait two years. They were going to hire an entire new bunch of staff to take care of all this. So Owl went in there on a pilot project, put themselves in there, trained everybody up, turned over the keys on how you work the thing, two weeks. The backlog was cleared up in two weeks without hiring a single extra body. So, and this is just the beginning because now these systems are starting to collect data. And big data is a wonderful thing because when you have lots of data, you can throw machine learning and AI bots at it and you can find things that no human mind could ever conceive of. Basically, they're starting to find ways, they're starting to figure out ways to detect fraud that the average human being couldn't do. Capital markets. So this is basically all about providing services to people who are in trading, portfolio management, whatever else it might be, basically the people who actually touch the money and run it for us, right? And you know, we've all, if anyone's ever used a Bloomberg terminal, anyone here? A couple of us. Not the most friendly user interface, and usually requires a really, really, really expensive computer terminal to, to use. Everybody's basically trying to take away their market share now. So this means everything from basically better being able to attribute performance, execute on trades, access data, and just make better decisions around, around investment. Digit's a big player in Canada, and Quandle, the number there, is an interesting story as well. They, are, they were recently last year bought by NASDAQ. They are the world leader in alternative data. No, 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 this has nothing to do with Trump and alternative facts, okay? This is alternative data is when you hear stories about things like satellite images of Walmart parking lots, that's what we're talking about. And a simple example of what they were doing was they were going around to companies that had, were sitting on tons of data that wasn't being monetized. So for example, they would go to a auto insurance company. That auto insurance company, they take in quotes every day on their website, right? People would request quotes or call in for quotes. Maybe they would buy it, maybe they wouldn't. Well, that quotation data, if anonymized, is hugely valuable to some people. Why? Because, well, let's just say Ford is projecting they're gonna sell X number of F-150s by the end of the year. You get updates every quarter on what their sales are looking like, but there's about a 90-day period in there where you have no idea what's going on. As a trader, as, a, as an analyst, wouldn't it be nice to know what's going on? Well, if they package up that data from that insurance company, anonymized, because they don't care if it's me or you or anybody else who's doing it, they just wanna know what the general number of quotes for F-150s are, and benchmark that against previous data on F-150s, they can tell the sales rate differential or they can project it out. That's just one example. And they're going around to tons of companies who are just sitting on treasure troves of data that have never been utilized in this way and finding new ways to monetize for them. Wealth management, the space near and dear to all our hearts. Yes, robos are the big thing we always think and worry about. 
but there's so much more going on here. Performance assessment tools, reporting, planning, financial planning, risk assessment, you name it. Everything we touch is either being digitized or has been digitized and is either, being, <laughs> either in competition with independence to do it or we are basically leveraging their systems for it. So the big story here is, of course, robo-advisors. Well, Simple is the big player in Canada, and frankly, they're about number seven in the world, believe it or not, when it comes to asset center management. There's other, again, companies up here. So Wealthica basically is an aggregator, collects all data from all different accounts, so you can track them all in one place. You got Wellscope up there, which provides uh, portfolio analytics that are far easier and friendlier to use than, say, something at Morningstar. You're starting to see some financial planning light products, like money gaps, come out. And of course, I've got Finometric up there, and I'm a big fan of the stuff that our friend Sean, sitting right there in front of me, does. So we have a lot of development here, but the one thing we're not seeing in Canada is something that we're 10 years behind the US on, and that's basically aggregation of some of these plays. For all those of you familiar with a company called Investnet, they are spending money like it's going out of style down in the States, and they are buying up all kinds of major plays. Most recently and most famously, they bought Money Guide Pro, the largest financial planning software in the US, if not one of the biggest in the world. And what they do is they go around and they bought a bunch of different tools that people like us would use in the US. And the real play, is to make them all work seamlessly between each other. We have not seen any of that in Canada. We've not seen any aggregation plays. The only thing that even comes close is Wellsimple announced two days ago, two days ago, three days ago, that they recently bought uh, SimpleTax, to which my first response was to, to one of the founders was, are you going to make them switch the name to Tax Simple? <laughs> but that is one of many things that they're looking at. I think we're going to start to see that happening with consolidation of some of these startups. And the thing is, is that that's not just a value to us, but it's also the big players are, look, are noticing this. So for those of you who want to understand what a really forward-looking company is thinking when it comes to technology, I suggest you listen to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Michael Kitsis, episode 100. It had the, one of the principles of a company called United Capital there, and that was one of the most impressive conversations I've ever heard. The way that, they are, that they've developed proprietary technology for deepening their relationships with consumers is incredible. And the way they were thinking about where they were going forward was visionary. Well... I must have not been the only person listening to it because Goldman Sachs turned around and bought them. So big players are not going to let the small players forever, you know, basically take them out. They're going to adopt some of these patterns as well. Lending. Lending is where some of the numbers start to get interesting. So lots of different lending options in Canada and elsewhere. And you're starting to see conventional and non-conventional. So Nesto is probably the bigger mortgage vendor in the country. Lending Loop is a company I've actually used in my business. They actually do peer-to-peer -peer business loans. So I actually required financing for my business. My bank is always a pain as always. And this was a simple process where people, where they crowdsourced money at the rate of between $25 to $100,000 for the loan that I required. It took a couple months to settle. There's also alternative lending. So Ledin will let you basically use your cryptocurrency for lending. So for all those who actually finally decided to buy some Bitcoin after my last conversation, if you want to leverage it, you can. And even uh, the last one, Coral, which actually will give you an option to use, uh, instead of using lending, lending for financing, you can use royalties. So you can give them a percentage of your, of your top line income. So those are, those are the Canadian plays, but, and they're working. Basically, when you look at it, the largest player in this space internationally is Lending Loop. Sorry, Lending Circle in the US. The names are a little similar for a reason. And they have been around since 2012, and they have actually lent out over $50 billion in peer-to-peer -peer loans. In addition to that, the interesting story there is that now their intellectual properties become incredibly valuable. What I mean by that is they started off by looking at FICO scores, general credit scores in the US, and gauging whether or not they would lend to people or what rates they would lend to people based on that. Well, they collected enough data from all their applicants and whether or not they paid to model out their own risk scoring system, which is now more accurate than FICO. 
They're able to lend out to more people who would traditionally have been left out of the consumer lending market, and they're able to do so with no increased risk. InsureTech, this is one where Canada is, I cannot express this enough, way behind what we're seeing elsewhere. Now, so is the US, so is most of the Western world. China is really the leader here, and I'll get to that in a second. So basically, all lines of business are being attacked here. Everything from individual to group to HSA to PNC, you name it. Some of them come with additional benefits. So they try to lure you in with other, or lure the consumer in with other benefits. So the Zenefits knockoffs of Canada, the big one, or friends of mine uh, over at Humi, are one of them. Free HR platform, but they get paid through the group benefits and through the payroll. So indirect payment, but it works well. It's a nice little benefit for small companies. Some of them, like my pals over Finale, will give you a free CRM. They are also an MGA that give you tools. So if you want to utilize them, their entire goal is to basically digitize the process from needs analysis all the way to policy issuance and servicing of the policy without any paper. Now, welcome to Canada. It's going to take a while. In fact, when I talk to them, I'm like, good luck pulling, pushing that boulder up a hill. But there's other players, Breathe Life, who basically is now into the direct-to-consumer market for life insurance, Honeybee, who basically is an offshoot of uh, Benicade and the health spending account, and Zensurance, which was in the business property and casualty space. And after being a lot around for less than three years, were bought out by a major insurance company. It was a great experience. You could literally get business insurance inside of five minutes. So basically, everybody here is trying to, the big problem in North America is everybody's trying to reinvent the tech stack and, and move forward. The problem is, is that if you, anybody ever had this falling experience, you ever had required an enforced illustration on a policy that might be 30, 40 years old, and you send out the request and Jackie's shaking her head right there, yeah. So it takes, takes two weeks to get a response, three if the guy who works those computers is on vacation, and essentially what you get back is what looks like a scan of a dot matrix printout. And the reason it's a scan of a dot matrix printout is because the information for that policy is still on a computer that probably uses vacuum tubes. Literally, it is something that no one has programmed on in 40 years, right? Now, I have a working theory on why they never bothered to migrate this data off, and it's very simple. Because every year the problem gets smaller, people die, right? So the, the joke I tell these, all, all these people in the industry is, I know what you're doing, you're waiting for these people to die so you don't have to pay for migration. And then they laugh, and then they kind of think about it, and they nod their heads, right? So that's my cynicism. But the reality is the infrastructure and insurance makes the infrastructure and investment look new. So it's been a big limiter. Now, what's possible when we move beyond that? Well, there's a company in China called Zenang. I'm gonna butcher this name, Zenang, something like that. Point is, is that they have been around for three years. They live completely in the, in the cloud. So essentially, all their marketing is done online and through social media. Application and, and policy issuance done completely online. All the servicing is done online through the likes of their website and even on WeChat, which if you don't know what WeChat is, imagine every social network in one chat bot. Like, it's crazy. Three years, you're all sitting down, 400 million customers, 10 billion policies sold, 53% to consumers under the age of 35. They have done what no one else in the world has done. They have managed to sell vast swaths of insurance to millennials and made them care about it. Why? because they live in the realm that the millennials do as well. So that's the current, let's talk about the future. And it's a good thing you're all sitting down because I've been joking around that this is a part of the presentation that might make you leap your pants. Okay, so here's the reality. I don't know what's gonna happen, no one does. But when you see this, you're gonna understand why it's even harder to understand what's gonna happen. And the reason is because we're in the midst of another industrial revolution. Yes, there was more than one. The first one was the original, the original OG revolution of industrialization, which was steam power which brought about industrialization and urbanization and the backdrop for every Charles Dickens book ever written. Move forward, you have the electrical revolution, which basically changed the oldest technology we had, lighting. 
but also changed everything from entertainment to medicine, transportation, you name it. We have all been living through the digital revolution, which has changed the way we basically interact with everything and communicate with everything. But next is the crazy one, is the fourth industrial revolution. And the fourth industrial revolution is a term that was coined by Professor Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum. And to read it out, the fourth industrial revolution is characterized by a fusion of technologies that will be blurring the lines between physical, digital, and biological spheres. Up until now, those things have been very distinct and different. Going forward, it's gonna be hard to know where one stops, starts and the other one ends. This is all being fueled predominantly by innovation in four specific key areas. Artificial intelligence. How many of us take for granted that we literally have voice assistants that will listen to a command and execute for us now? From your phone to a watch, to anyone have a smart speaker at home? Yeah, a couple of you. I have three, because I have to test them all. That's just me, my wife hates it. But the point is, is that artificial intelligence is being applied, I see it being applied everywhere in every capacity we can imagine. And anything that, revolve, that involves repetitive behavior, the computer's gonna win. Blockchain, a methodology for basically ensuring that we can basically reconcile or come to agreement as to what has happened without the need for tedious re reconciliation of the past. The cloud, how many of you can operate basically your business from anywhere now. How many of you have access to every client file sitting here right now? How, you know what? It should be everyone's hand by this point. Quantum computing. This lecture is actually happening at a particularly interesting time. So, interesting development happened earlier this week. Basically, something, a paper was posted to NASA's website and taken down very quickly thereafter, possibly for national security reasons. What happened was, engineers, apparently according to this paper, from those who managed to get a hold of it, Engineers at Google managed to achieve what's known as quantum superiority. What that means is that they gave a problem to a quantum computer, which is not the most stable thing in the world, but they finally hopefully have created stability, that basically would have taken the most advanced supercomputers currently 10,000 years to finish. The problem was solved in three minutes and 20 seconds. If that is true, that means all of our encryption algorithms are dead. <laughs> but we'll see. Then we'll, soon we'll have, we'll have quantum security soon, just wait. But it is orders of magnitude beyond what we are experiencing currently. Artificial reality and virtual reality. Seems like a game. I actually used it as a game. I was at a, um, believe it or not, I went some, with some friends to a game where we, would base, we were in a warehouse and we shot up a bunch of zombies. And we did that for a good hour. And you basically get immersed in this reality very quickly. And you're just in that world. And you know you're in the real world. But when you take that thing off, it is the most jarring experience that is almost impossible to design. The fact that you realize that the entire time you were in this warehouse, you knew it. But to experience it is something just very different. Biotechnology. Anyone know what CRISPR-Cas9 is? Yes, for those of you who don't, it's a technology that allows us to literally go in and edit genes on DNA, holding the promise for clearing a number of genetic diseases. Robotics. I mean, anyone who's looked at the floor of a manufacturing plant in the last 10 years has seen that the people aren't there anymore, it's robots. Elon Musk has pretty much said that he wants materials going in, cars coming out, only repairmen going in. And it's not just in those areas. I've literally seen venture capital plays that are looking to, I kid you not, replace humans at flipping burgers and making pizzas with robots. Look, all I'm gonna say is they better not mess with the quality of fried chicken, okay? Like, I am not accepting that. <laughs> I will pay a premium to have that cooked properly. And for the record, that's not the first time this comes up on my podcast. <laughs> 3D printing. Today, it's been rather gimmicky, but I've literally seen 3D printers that can work in multiple materials and multiple different types of uh, mediums and produce things that are necessary for, for industry when a piece breaks, being able to literally generate it on the spot. Advanced materials, right? If anyone knows what carbon nanotubes are, these are something that don't occur, doesn't occur in nature. We're able to rearrange carbon molecules into an actual structure that's stronger than steel and lighter by a long shot. The Internet of Things, 
in my house alone. I have my alarm system, thermostat, front door, garage door, smart speaker, motion detectors, cameras, all talking to each other. Everything talks to each other. We're in a world where soon, hopefully, our cars will be talking to each other. How much safer will it be if the cars all know where everybody is? Power generation and capture. We're in a world now where, believe it or not, very soon, according to current trends, solar is going to be the cheapest form of power to generate power generation. And as for transportation of that, there are lots of promising technologies in the labs right now that may extend battery life well beyond what we're used to, even as long as 100 years. And then lastly, nanotechnology. I don't have a crazy story for this one yet, but just the concept of it's crazy in itself, right? The ability to put machines into your bodies to solve problems. We're still, this one's still a little while off, but there's still a lot of promise there. So change is the only constant in life, which was the term that I live by, which was basically spawned or at least recorded or accredited to Heraclitus back in the 500s BC. Could you imagine how much today would blow his mind? So, and if you think this is far off, it's not. Here's a couple of stories from recently. That robot, HSBC, about a month ago, announced that they were putting up a robot in a downtown Toronto office. I have not had a chance to go visit them yet, but this robot will answer questions about RESPs, RSPs, and TFSAs. They're counting for us. So Facebook, the company has proven we can't trust them with our, with our pictures of our dogs, wants us to trust us with their money. And they have created their own cryptocurrency called Libra. And they have basically created a consortium of companies that are willing to back this thing, which is an interesting challenge to nation states' ability to control their own currency. Virtual reality. There is a software, a financial planning software in the US that about two years ago actually created a virtual reality floating console of, or dashboard of your life. Now, it was a gimmick, but it was an interesting gimmick. Artificial intelligence. I can tell you that I have seen early stages of this creeping into just about everything we do, from portfolio management to financial planning software. And frankly, when you think about what it takes to run the permutations, the number of possible permutations to find the optimal scenario for anything, the robots are gonna win. So I'm not sure who said this. It may have been Peter Thiel, I can't remember, but I haven't been able to find the, the definitive uh, source. But nevertheless, it's one I believe in. In the future, there will only be two types of companies, tech companies and dead companies. If you fail to leverage technology, everybody else will have an advantage over you in terms of efficiency, speed, margins, you name it. So the question is, do we wanna be dinosaurs with a meter coming at us? The difference between us and dinosaurs is great. Is one, one very serious, besides the opposable thumbs, we can move out of the way of the meteor. <laughs> we have the choice, we see it coming, we can act. So let's do that. And I will tell you this much, for all the scary things I just showed you, again, I don't know what the future is gonna hold, but I do know one thing, is that unless you get yourself into a changed mindset and start making small incremental improvements in your practices over and over again, the people who do are gonna be light years ahead of you when the bigger ones come. Is that a position you wanna be in? Now, before you say that, you know what, I can't, this business is different, whatever, you know, whatever the 9,000 excuses people come up with about why they can't change, even in the simplest ways, let me show you some examples of three sleepy industries that you would think, why would technology touch these people? But it's been revolutionizing them. So this is a company I deal with, is an accounting firm called LiveCA. I've been dealing with them since they were about four to six people. They're now at just around 45 to 50 people, including their own in-house tax lawyers. And they've grown that big in six years. Here's the punchline on these guys. They have no fixed address. Everyone, they have no fixed address. Every member of the company works from home or from wherever in the world they want to work. The two founders like to joke that they're the only two founders of a 50-person accounting firm that are homeless. One of them is a digital nomad, and every time I talk to him, he's somewhere in the world, you know, Buenos Aires, somewhere in Brazil, Tel Aviv, you name it. The other one travels North America in a motorhome with his family. Yet, they are my gold standard for service. 
Best service I've ever had. And they've also pretty much cornered the market in fintechs in, in Toronto. How do they do it? They've literally just leveraged commercially available software. Nothing, no artificial intelligence, nothing robust, but the accounting software they use is called Zero. You can use it yourself. I use it myself. They also utilize different technology for receipt scanning, for pulling statements from your various websites, payroll, bill paying, you name it. And all the meetings are held over Zoom. And they'll hold quarterly meetings with every business to basically show them where they stand and advise them. So again, sleepy industry that has just taken basic off-the-shelf technology and been one of the fastest growing accounting firms in the country. Why in God's name am I showing you pizza? Because you love it. I love it too. So Domino's, 2008 was a dark day for, 2008 was a dark year for most companies. But for Domino's in particular, it was a turning point. They were basically known for having a crappy quality product and they had gone from being number one or number two in the space to basically losing to a lot of new ones, new companies coming in. And their stock price was just under somewhere around 350. Basically then decided to reinvent themselves, not just by improving the product, by improving every aspect of the experience possible, by removing all friction imaginable from the process of pizza. And they basically now see themselves as a technology company that delivers pizza. Now that may sound ridiculous, but let me give you, let me tell you how. You can order Domino's pizza nutritional ways over the phone, on their website, but also by their digital app, through MSN Messenger, through text. You can literally text them a single word and it will reorder the same order you had last time. When the order goes in, if you're using the digital app, you ever seen the pizza tracker? Let me see that. It shows you what stage of the entire process your pizza's in. It shows you that the order's been received, it's been confirmed, they are baking it, it's in the oven, it is being inspected, and it's out for delivery. So guess what? They never get a call anymore asking, where's my pizza? And as for the calls, this is the truly crazy one. So I got reports last year of an early test pilot that they did with artificial intelligence chatbots on the phone. Now, this is actually a perfect spot for that sort of technology. Why? Because there's only so many questions you could ask about pizza. Now, the results, 95% accuracy. They understood 95% of what people were saying on the first crack. The satisfaction rates were off the charts because, think about it, you're never going to get someone with an accent or talking at a pace you can't understand because the robot's got the normal voice and talks at a normal pace. And you're never going to catch a robot on a bad day. It's never going to be a kind of a jerk on the phone. So basically, they have taken the sleepy industry of pizza delivery and become the U.S.'s leader in it. So much so that when they, last year, at one point, their price of pizza, their price topped out at just under 300 bucks. That is a 50% over 50% per year average rate of return. And they have made, actually been one of the top performing stocks in the US for the last 10 years. So forget Apple, you should have been buying pizza stock. Amazon Go, anyone seen one of these? It's because we're not in Canada, one person. I was in Chicago recently, and as soon as I saw this, I had to go in, because I've been hearing about it. Amazon is trying to reinvent the corner store by doing what? Getting rid of the people. You walk in, you take out your phone, you scan the Amazon app, you then pick up whatever you want, and you walk out. There's no cashier. How? If you look up at the ceiling, you see more sensors and cameras than you could ever imagine. And on every item, there is a scale. Take it off, put it on, it detects that. There have been countless tech reporters that have gotten permission from the company to go in and try to shoplift, and they've all failed. And it's a bit of an odd experience. So you literally walk in, you get whatever you want, and you walk out. It's like for anyone, for the first, anyone who took Uber for the first time and walked out and got out of a cab without paying, like it's now the opposite. If I ever take a traditional cab, the cabbie's almost got to yell at me to come back because I've literally forgotten, oh, oh geez, yeah, I had to give you cash. So you're not a major corporation. You don't control your dealership. You don't control your custodian, right? There's only so much you can do. 
if you want to implement end-to-end -end digital onboarding of the client and have it capture all the information at source and then open up the account and that goes smoothly, you can't control that. But there are countless little tasks within our control within, that are within our control. First of all, you can complain to your dealership and custodian to make that stuff happen. <laughs> so that's the first thing. But really, there's a lot of small things within our practice that we can do. So what I'm trying to tell you all is you have to adopt, adopt a change mindset. I like to refer to it as my Kaizen approach of pain. Wherever my business feels pain, I want to find a way to take it away. And I will often sit down with my associates and say, okay, what is painful? What is causing friction? What is stopping you from moving forward? And some of the stuff we just can't address, right? Like I can't address deficiencies in paperwork because something got missed on page 138 of 700, right? Like digitization will do that. But we have to change the way we have worked in the past. So the old way was to simply hire staff and delegate, right? That's what every coach told us. Don't do the non-client facing stuff, hire someone else to do that. And that works, right? But there's a couple problems with that. First off, that's a high fixed cost, right? Salaries, you gotta start paying them from day one. And they don't scale, right? There's no actual efficiency gained. You're basically taking an inefficient process, passing it over to someone else, and they continue to do it inefficiently. And over time, regardless, th this basically hurts your margins because labor costs a lot. And let's not forget the pain in the A factor, the PETA factor, that is hiring and firing. You know, when I partnered up with a couple of people, I said, look, I will handle marketing technology, this other stuff, but you guys are handling HR. And they're like, yeah, no problem, we'll handle HR. They have lived to regret it every day <laughs> since that decision. So you have hiring and firing labor laws. The new way is to leverage technology, focus on automation. And the benefits of it is that a lot of these softwares that I utilize have very small incremental costs, relatively speaking. And many of them actually scale with the business, meaning that the more I grow, the more the cost is. And I would rather that as opposed to pay this large lump sum and hope to get business out of it. And over time, yes, you do gain efficiencies, your margins do get better. And the thing about technology is it can do the work of multiple people. So the pain in the butt factor here is, of course, you need to learn how to use these systems. And I will tell you, and I will say this for every friend I have in the financial and the technology industry, the sales store industry, we are ridiculously cheap and we need to stop being that way. The debates I see over the cost of financial planning software that will cost anywhere between $35 to $100 a month on average. And it's just like, really, like we're financial planners. Like if we can't pay a hundred bucks a month for the thing we do, then what is going on here? So you have to shift your mindset because the reality is when you think about it, how much software can you buy or develop for the equivalent of one staff salary? And how many people would that one staff, would all that technology replace? I currently estimate that, I mean, I've got a team of seven people and I would say just from the small implementations I'm gonna show you here, we are probably operating one person, less, one full-time equivalent person now because of it at a fraction of the cost of that salary. So what to focus on? Technology versus people. The robots are gonna win at some of this stuff, people, but there's certain things that's not gonna win at it. And interestingly enough, the young students from, uh, from SAIT actually nailed some of this stuff. So basically, things, examples of what the technology is gonna beat us at. Repetitive stuff like booking, confirming meetings, generating processing paperwork, collecting, tracking, updating, reconciling client data, generating testing financial planning scenarios, developing reports and presentations, implementing rebalancing portfolios and analyzing data. Basically anything we consider heavy lifting stuff that many of us have defined, like you pay me to take care of all this stuff for you. That's not what we're gonna win at anymore. What we are gonna win at is the human side of this. It's taking what the robots give us, making sure it actually fits the client's situation, making sure we understand so we can relay it to the client, handling implementation, the soft skills of holding hands, the soft skills of dealing with them when basically, when, um, when, basically when markets are down, educating clients, family counseling, family succession planning, all the things that we talk about as value adds that we do that really academic data says, hey, this is either valuable or this is so valuable, we can't actually price this because 
you know, it's so bespoke to the client's experience. So that's what we're going to need to focus on. Use the technology to leverage that to let us focus more on client-facing activity. So eliminate the stuff and focus on the client. So I talked about my Kaizen approach to pain. Identify your pain with your staff. What is taking time? But what is repetitive? What is something that may have some sort of solution out there that might make this easier? I'm going to show you four examples in a minute. Look for a solution. Where do I go? There's this magical website that spelled G-O-O-G-L-E. I like to call it the answer machine to everything. You just go type in there, and it's a great starting point. I'm going to give you some resources for looking for stuff afterwards. Try multiple options. I'll hear people say, oh, I tried this. It sucks, so I went back to the old thing. You know there's more than one vendor for things, right? Like, just, just saying. Sometimes you need to play around with different ones to, to find, you know, for scheduling systems, I literally tried four of them, and only one of them kind of met the needs of my business, so I went with that. And then you implement it, and you make sure everyone in the company uses it, because nothing irritates me more than the people who basically are like, oh, look, this is the solution that solves your problem, and they don't want to spend the time learning it, so they keep on doing things the old way, right? So push your staff, reward your staff for that, and then take those productivity gains and reinvest and go back to the beginning and keep doing it. So four examples from my business. The first one was client booking. You're having a review with my, with my one uh, staff member who's in charge of running the schedule for three advisors. And in that meeting, it came up that she estimated about 60% of her time was being spent booking, confirming, and rebooking meetings. Well, I didn't like the sound of that at all. So basically, I've been meaning to look at calendaring systems for a while, finally got around to it, tested four, picked one. For three advisors for the year, $2,000 or less, roughly. So do the math, divide that by 12, divided by three, it ain't much. So there's still some clients, the older ones, who basically won't use this system. And there's still some people who call in, but overall, it's a much better system now. Clients get emailed a link, they click on it, they see my schedule, they pick whatever time works for them. They pick if they wanna come into the office or not, which by the way, when you offer people a virtual meeting, you'd be amazed how many of the older ones select it. And then they put in their contact information. They say, accept. A booking confirmation goes to both our calendars. It reminds them, Two weeks in advance saying, we're looking really forward to seeing you. If anything's come up, let us know. Week in advance, we're looking really forward to seeing you next week. Let us know if anything's come up or changed. One day before saying, we look forward to greeting you tomorrow. Let us know if there's anything we can do for you in advance, any of the issues you have, and even text them the day of as a reminder. The number of people who just don't show up for our meetings has fallen through the floor. And if they need to reschedule, the link's right there. Click, boom, done. So I'm not gonna tell you what I pay my staff member, but if you can estimate roughly what it would cost to have an assistant in Toronto, with her time going from 60 down to less than 20% doing this, minus $2,000, ballpark 16 to $20,000 efficiency gain. What did I do with that time? I have her spend, spending time on social media and marketing, hopefully generating business for, the, for us. So putting her on more productive business generation things. Questionnaires. We have an associate planner who handles all the input of the financial planning data and then also basically some of the more easy ones more basic ones, I get involved in more complex ones. So we estimate, but he's also responsible for tracking clients down for this data. And we all know as financial planners, especially when you do things comprehensively and in depth, that takes forever. You're constantly going back and forth. You give them a paper questionnaire, they might lose it, who knows. I found a system called Precise FP that allows you to build financial planning based questionnaires, allows clients to upload documents, sign documents, you name it, all in a secure environment. And then once they're done, it basically saves over to my cloud drive. It also handles the reminders. $600 per year. That has gone from less than 30% of that planner's time, from 30% of the client planner's time to, down to less than 30. And that gain that I estimated being worth more than $20,000 a year in productivity to me. He's able to spend more time actually working on the plans, helping with clients, and now he's actually taking on some client load as well. Digital onboarding. So my dealership is finally launching this across the board for everything, but I've been using digital onboarding in a different capacity for years. 
We all have clients who want us to take on their, their, their kids, right? And more often than not, we will take them on, but really they're loss leaders when you think about it. A kid with a $500 account to start, by the time you look at the amount of time that the time and money it takes that assistant to prep the paperwork, because the same amount of time to prep paperwork for a $500 account as it is for a million dollar account, and you look at what we make in return for it, they're definitely loss leaders, but we do that for the deeper relationships. So when Simple came out with the Simple for Advisor platform, first of all, I had already used their app. And for those of you who haven't used one yet, the experience was very simple. I downloaded the app, took me four minutes to onboard and put money in, do all the KYC stuff. And when I did that the first time, I was thoroughly impressed. And about two minutes later, I was thoroughly angry at the experience that we give our clients. So we started using this as a test case with clients' children. Instead of having this, my staff member having to spend hundreds of dollars in labor hours preparing paperwork, there's the link, it goes off, taken care of. If we don't agree with the risk, with the allocation based on what the Finometrica score was versus what they put them into, we can intervene. So a single email, we're basically saving hundreds of dollars per small client we utilize on the system. And it's been, a, it's again, led to reduced staffing need. My current project right now is in our process, we have, we deliver it in modules. So we do the financial plan, but after that we do the investment insurance tax and estate planning. And we always, we try to put together a lovely takeaway of a, a report that explains what it is we're, we're getting at, educating the clients, doing the needs analysis, all of that, and a very distilled presentation to give them in person. Now that takes, we have templates, so we have to go in and manually change the information based on the person's individual needs and whoever they are, even their name. But that's a lot of work, a lot of repetition. So instead, what I'm gonna do is I have already spoken to a developer on this, and I'm gonna redo those templates and tag the different fields that need to be updated based on whatever information needs to be updated. And then I'm going to create one master spreadsheet with a template where all the stuff that needs to be populated in all those fields gets put. And then once it's there, it'll be a button click that will open up the report and the presentation and populate all that information over. Quote I got from the developer was 1500 bucks. It's actually not that difficult, but how much time is that gonna save me? So nothing on this screen is something that should scare any of you. These are all very simple implementations. And I would say, like I said, I estimate them one staff member shorter for it which makes me all the more profitable. So I would say, again, this is all from a Kaizen approach to pain. Where's the problems in the business? Where are we spending time on things that are not client-facing, not that productive, reminder-based, whatever it is. And you don't have to, I was talking to someone earlier, you don't have to reinvent the wheel all in one shot. You don't have to look at this and say, I want this truly massively digital business because we all get intimidated by trying to eat the elephant. Just have it all in one bite. And the next thing you know, you have a practice where all these things are being utilized. You're far more productive and you're able to basically, again, improve margins and focus on client experience. Recently on a podcast, I was listening to an advisor who I believe, believe it, this is a crazy story, advisor out of San Francisco, so that helps, running $990 million in client assets, 300 households. Anyone want to guess how many staff members he had? Zero. Zero. Someone said six. That was a, that's a low-end estimate. Normally, zero. This guy ran almost a billion dollars with no staff through the use of a TAMP for outsourcing and some other digital tools. So, where to turn? Remember that magic website I told you about, the answer machine? So Google's the first place to go. The scheduling thing was simple. Typed in automated scheduling system, and they basically, they're all there. There's a website called Captera. Captera is a great site for comparing vendors. So basically, if there's multiple players in a space, they will take in user reviews and lay out feature sets, and you can compare side by side what does what, and who you should be spending your time looking at, and what the price tag is. So it's a great little resource. Fiverr. Fiverr is a website for contractors. You can find someone willing to do just about anything for very little. So everything from logo design to web design to, yes, coding to programming. And when I say this guy's gonna program this spreadsheet, he's doing it all in Google Sheets. Like this is not, it's like I'm having to build a separate program over here. He's using my Google spreadsheet program. 
Zapier. Zapier is an interesting company that connects companies' APIs. So what that means is if that, you can actually go in there and say, hey, I use this software. What other softwares can I connect it to? And it will give you a list of all the other softwares that can connect you to with this program and the different tasks it can do. So for example, someone, someone signs up for my website, on my website for my newsletter, it can automatically trigger the creation of that person as a prospect in Salesforce. Going one step further, a company I've just started playing around with is something called Process Street. Process Street basically allows you to map out your client experience process. So I, you know, from the time a prospect comes in, what does that entire experience look like? And then you can ask yourself, where does this touch technology that I use? And you can actually link your technology to this to create triggers to automatically trigger when you get to that part in the process. So I have an initial prospect call with the client. I mark them in Salesforce as, yes, I, this guy's moving forward. Boom, it would automatically trigger precise FP sending the questionnaire out, helping ensure consistent processes. And you do not need to know how to type a line of code, people. If you can program in Excel, that's more advanced than you need for this stuff. So really, that's what I'm trying to tell you people, is that essentially we have a lot of challenges coming our way. And failing to adapt is only going to put you behind the eight ball even more every year. And you, don't, you do not need to reinvent your practice overnight. What you need to do is take small incremental steps that eventually will one day have a very large impact on your firm. If you want to learn more about this, well, before we get there, so the question I have for you all is, do you want to be the meteor or do you want to be the dinosaur? So I'll tell you right now, it seems like a lot more fun flying through the sky in a blaze of glory. If you want to learn more about this, I'm going to plug my podcast. I interview different fintech entrepreneurs, hosts, thought leaders in the space, and it's a great place to learn about what's happening in the space and different vendors you can talk to. So with that, any questions? Did I scare you all to death? No. Terry. Thank you, Jason. Good job. Um, on the scheduling app, so do you use Google or Calendly? So the one I use, I always, so I'll tell you what I use, but my first sentence they say whenever someone asks me, what do you use? What I use is irrelevant. What's relevant is that you need to find the vendor that fits your business model. So we use Schedule Once, and we use Schedule Once because it was the one that best fits the multiple schedules and multiple advisors that sometimes have to be in the same meeting together. But there's a bunch of other ones, Calendarly, Meeting Bird. There's even one called Clara Labs, which is an interesting one. It basically is a kind of a chatbot. Essentially, you BCC the Clara Labs address, and then it's your virtual assistant. And they will just say like, hey, Jason's available on these days. Are you available? The person replies, no, I'm available, and says I'm available on these days. They'll say, great, that works for Jason at this time, and then sets up the meeting. And just goes, plays ping pong back and forth until such time as one is picked. What was that called? Clara Labs. Clara? Clara, C-L-A-R-A. In fact, it's a funny story. A friend of mine who uses that once had someone call him and said, look, what's your phone number for your assistant so I get this taken care of? He started laughing. <laughs> she doesn't exist. I'm curious just to hear your take on the future of different service providers in the financial services industry. So, you know, there's companies coming on now where yep. you can do an online bill. I actually, that's this year, that's this week's podcast. Yep. I think that we are, that Canada is an interesting beast uh, where we have basically turned over far much to control to a handful of great large organizations who will prevent development of certain things until such time as they're ready to make sure that they are entrenched and will survive. That does not mean that other competitors will not come up and basically challenge them in various facets of business. So I do not foresee the, any of the great giants being toppled anytime soon. However, I do foresee certain lines of business being very challenged by, by newcomers. Clara Labs, like a lab, no, 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 lab, lab as in like a lab. test tube. Yeah, lab, yeah, there you go. Okay, so, so what do you think we should be doing to, for technology BI currently uses, such as their uh, RFP4? What would be 
That's a funny question, because when someone complained about the forum and saying they wanted to change settings, I immediately wrote down new forum provider in my notes. So there are different vendors out there, and the problem is cost. Like the best vendor I've ever seen does the FPA forum in the US, as well as a couple other ones I use, but that's expensive. So what we'll to talk. There's, I can fix it. <laughs> Anyone else? Nope. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So that was my presentation on FitTech and the Future of Financial Advice at the IFP Annual Symposium. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is to your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.